Welcome everyone to 4 to Doomsday, the 42nd best Doctor Who podcast out there. I'm Mark. I'm Rob. And tonight it's 1989 all over again as we go back dragging up and ourselves through the archives. <laughs> Hi Rob, how's it going? Good, Mark. Yourself? Good. Uh, we're not going to talk about Shard. We're not going to follow the herd tonight, are we? No, we're not going to do that. I, I just want to make a slight programming note. The room that I record in is the same room as every other night or episode. However, I've stripped the room bare. There is no six-foot-wide desk. There is no single-seater sofa. There are no books on the floor, so it may actually sound a bit hollow and echoey. So I do apologize to everyone there. Uh, just stripping back to minimalism, I have a $12... I'll say that again, a $12 desk that I've got the PC perched on. <laughs> Basically turning the office into a little uh, nook for my wife to um, do some painting. So uh, I've taken the big desk out. There's plenty of room for my wife to do painting. So if I do sound echoey and a uh, bit, bit hollow, it, A, because I've got nothing, you know, I've got no moral core, but B, uh, the ceilings are very high and I've got nothing to absorb my voice with. So yeah, there you go. Is the old desk being retired because after last episode, you went a little <laughs> bit too hard on it? <laughs> Well, a little bit, but it's, it's also going to be going on Gumtree. So if there's anyone actually out there in Melbourne who'd like a six-foot-wide faux oak desk, uh, six drawers, uh, quite nice, slightly damaged from fist bumps and all that sort of thing, uh, just hit us up on the, on our WordPress account or even Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. There you go. As used on 42 to Doomsday, on your Gumtree ad and see what's, uh, <laughs> what response you get. I want people to want to buy it, Mark. I don't want to drive the uh, the adoring hordes away. But anyway. All three of them. But uh, anyway, so uh, dragged through the archives. For those who don't know, what is it, Rob? Well, Mark, we go back uh, in the Wayback Machine to, uh, well, the 80s, basically, which is the peak of uh, Doctor Who fanzines. And in this case, we're, we're examining, uh, I think it's largely DWB. Is that correct? That's correct. We've also got one or two uh, little bits of uh, sonic screwdriver goodness uh, from that same oh, yes. period as well. The uh, the fanzine where I contributed to 20 consecutive issues back in 1990-something, I can't remember. And mm. I also was the rewriting editor and contributed many articles as well from 1989 to 1993. <laughs> that was that was before my time, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yes, yeah. yes very good. So we, uh, we plucked some... Uh, well, you've actually, Mark, you've done all the hard work. Uh, we plucked <laughs> s- some articles out that uh, maybe were, you know, hot... Uh, back in 89 that may actually have echoes forward into the future and we have a bit of a laugh and uh, and we just see where Doctor Who fandom was in its last uh, classic series run. We'll start off with uh, an article from DWB uh, issue 68 uh, which is uh, August 1989 just uh, shortly before our season 26 actually aired. The headline screams season 26 sailing through season 26 has virtually avoided being affected by the strikes plaguing the bbc and it is anticipated that ghostlight the final story to go into production will also pull through unpeded although production of survival sailed through a major problem was created for the actors donning cheetah people costumes because of the stifling heat of Britain's unseasonally exotic summer, with a temperature probably uh, broke 19 degrees. (laughs) And then it says, CT's big news, in air quotes. Those of you tempted to renew their DWAS membership after Brian Robb's letter last issue needn't bother, as the big exclusive news story 
he referred to simply claims that a few minutes worth of Curse of Fenric were apparently accidentally wiped at the editing stage. The scene involved supposedly included just Sylvester and Sophie, and since CT goes on to state a remount of the scene was staged during the recording of Survival, there was actually no great cause for concern. Incidentally, despite initial fears that transpires that Curse of Fenric had been successfully edited into a fast-paced and gripping adventure, even though it seemed at one stage it would only work as a five-parter successfully. Furthermore, it seemed that Equity, uncharacteristically, would not object to the full footage being released in a future BBC video, at least in principle, because the contracts involved would be the same for the edited and full versions as they were both recorded in the same block. As a side note, it would appear that the main reason Silver Nemesis failed so miserably was because the production team were obliged to keep in the non-essential scenes involving the Queen and Dolores Grey as they both had featured extensively in publicity. Had they been excluded and more relevant footage vital to the plot have been included, then it might have made a bit more sense. Exclamation mark. What a poorly written article. It was probably also poorly read by me. No, no, no. Well, that's a poorly written <laughs> article. Uh, just a, another programming note. If anyone hears someone singing a Taylor, Swift, a Taylor Swift song in the background, that's my daughter preparing for her... Uh, uh, her, her school camp and they're having a bit of a, um, a talent show on and uh, yeah she's a bit of a, a song and dance thing going on in the background there so I do apologise if anyone can hear her Shake it up or the new one Look what you made me do Look what you made me do yes Yeah it's not very good I don't think She's got better stuff earlier on when she was selling 10 million albums Shake it off Rob Yeah so there's plenty of that in the uh, men's toilets at the MCG on grand final day I haven't mentioned that yet have I? <laughs> How was, uh, just look, we're going to go on a complete tangent here, but you know, we've only got four episodes to go. Mark, how was grand final day for you as your beloved Richmond Tigers, uh, you know, emerged from a generation and a bit of complete failure to success? Well, I couldn't get tickets. So I said, look, I'm going to sit at home with a couple of babies and just watch it by myself, just in case the unthinkable happens and either we lose or we, you know, we win. But my neighbours were talking to my missus and they're Richmond supporters. And they said, look, come over and watch it together. So we watched it together, watching it together. in the first two quarters, pretty close. And then towards the end, you know, Richmond are running away with it. And they're all jumping around going, we're winning. And there's like 40 seconds to go. I said, no, 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 not yet. I could turn around. I've been here too many times before. <laughs> About eight goals ahead at that point. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, anything could happen. And it wasn't until the, you know, the siren... Uh, screamed out i must have been i did get a little bit uh, teary as well but uh, i was sending you guys text uh, mm. through the afternoon it's still quite surreal but apparently um uh, swan street and punt road were stinking of urine for about three days after the event because uh, the fans went nuts down there you saw photos in the papers the next day of grown men who should know better crying after the final siren uh and yes swan street which is uh, just around the corner from where the grand final was held and is in the suburb of Richmond was, uh, according to the footage that I saw, absolutely jam-packed. People, you know, uh, hanging off awnings, shop awnings, people jumping on cars that were stupidly parked there. Uh, you know, just all sorts of... It was Basically, it was like a, a Saturday night in uh, ancient Rome at about 2 AD. Just a, <laughs> a, a Bacchanalian Saturnalia that was going on that, that couldn't be stopped. So, yes. It was on like Donkey Kong, as they say, Robert. <laughs> You're actually like a friend of mine. I went uh, around to some mates' place, uh, I think it was about 2007 or eight when Hawthorne won uh, their first grand final since 1991, I think. Mm. And he, he, he proceeded to get blind uh, drunk uh, because he didn't think that they'd actually win. 
and uh, they actually won. So I don't think he has too many memories of uh, of that afternoon. But uh, mm-hmm. well, good on good on Richmond, and, and and good on all their supporters for sticking with them. We have, we have another friend who uh, who's been a dogged Richmond supporter for many decades, and uh, we bagged him for years. But uh, they finally did it. So there you go. That was it. Actually, going back to this article, Mark. Mm. I mean, what 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 do you make of it? I mean, I, I take away uh, the idea that. Um, the BBC would, uh, you know, they're talking about BBC video and the idea of releasing extra footage on a, on a release. I mean, uh, that sort of thing, you know, then caused some 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 quivers within equity. But uh, today, you know, it's 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 expected that there's extra footage somewhere included into into releases, isn't there? That's right. It is now the norm. Where then it was tantalisingly mentioned. But it really took another two years to fruition. But what I love about this article was it's like the kiss and the kick principle. There's a bit of a kiss says, look, there's been no strike. And then we'll have the kick, which is basically CT, which is obviously Celestial Toy Room. Uh, big news, because I think the, the DWB and, and uh, the Duas are in a bit of a war by then. Mm. And then it goes back to the news article. So We all must remember, and there are probably sort of news series fans who, who tune in occasionally to us uh, and who don't know who DWB was. DWB was the equivalent i suppose of a you know a, a scandal sheet a tabloid rag uh it traded in gossip it traded in rumor uh it it, it traded in outlandish uh articles um it it, it basically a, you know it, it it had a vendetta against jnt it had a bit of a vendetta against the bbc it had a vendetta against everyone and doctor who <laughs> <laughs> at one point or another uh in actual fact fandom today to an extent uh misses uh, a publication of this type because I, I think there's a lot of received wisdom about the show at the moment that is that goes along unchallenged uh, look I, I obviously you know certain dark corners of the internet there are forums where you can basically say what you want about anyone and, and sort of get away with it but uh, I don't know sometimes I think that Doctor Who I don't, look I don't really know what the impact of DWB overall was on Doctor Who but uh, I think sometimes it gave a lot of disoriented fans Back in the '80s, who didn't know what to make of JNT and JNT's changes, uh, a place to go and vent. And I think sometimes that uh, we, we we need something like that today, even though there are obviously online forums that enable you to do that. I think the upper management of the BBC did sort of keep abreast at a very high level what DWB was was doing. And some mm. people suggest that actually DWB helped drive the final nail. Uh, in the coffin, I don't believe that myself. No, no. Yes, we sort of focus on the more outlandish articles, but buried within those those uh, fanzines, there is some really good stuff in there actually. Uh, usually, usually towards the back, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you look at a lot of the new adventure writers, new adventures writers, and missing adventures writers got their start in fanzines. I mean, Paul Cornell, for instance. Um, had a number of uh, well-received pieces of fiction in, in Queen Bat, which was a really, really good um, fanzine that actually had uh, some wonderful illustrations by a fellow who went on to work on the InVision uh, magazines. And his name, I think last name was Bevan. Uh, Phil Bevan. Phil Bevan, yeah. He, he, he sadly passed away about 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and I've often wondered if anyone would you know, get together and, and collect his, 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 uh, his artwork because it's... It's really it's 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 intricate and it's organic and it, and uh, it, it really works. But I, I don't. I mean, I actually contacted the editor of or the owner of of Milk, and said, you know, would anyone just as a by the by, would anyone consider doing that? And he said, well, yes, but the fact that it would sell to about twenty people and to do it in color would mean that you know they'd make a massive loss on it. So unfortunately, uh, you know, you, I don't think you'll see it in book form. But I mean, if you know, if the family can be convinced to allow someone to 
host it on a, on a website or a, you know, a blog somewhere, it'd be, it'd be wonderful because they're fantastic illustrations if anyone would like to hunt them down. I remember the case of Androzani one he did for DWB, which was, uh, you mentioned organic, I think it was quite orgasmic <laughs> with uh, Nicholas, uh, Nicola Bryant's cleavage there. The observation they made, which is absolutely correct, about Silver Nemesis where you know they had the, uh, the the scenes with the Queen and Dolores Gray. Mm. If the publicity hadn't featured on them at all, you could have absolutely cut those out. They made no sense or relevance to the plot at all. I mean, uh, Dolores Gray, I, I don't think she had much uh, involvement in British and TV and film, so I, I think it was sort of a and t affectation to have her on and the idea of having a stand-in for the Queen, well, you know, come on. It was about as convincing then as it was for the opening of the, the London Olympic Games where Her Majesty and uh, uh, James Bond, uh, Daniel Craig, leapt from a helicopter... Uh, <laughs> Uh, as we saw in that footage. No, not very convincing at all. It was supposed mm. to be Prince mm. Edward, apparently. Really? He was tagged to do it, but uh, I think the edict came down from the powers that be in the royals uh, mm. and basically said it's not going to happen. So uh, there you go. There you go. Let's oh. move on. Yeah, on to uh, the same issue, Rob. It says Target News. Now, season 26 is currently being novelised by all its original TV authors. Ian Briggs is working flat out to have Curse of Fenric finished by the end of July and WH Allen are anticipating an early 1990 release for it. And then the subheading, Penna Cassata. Sounds like an Italian restaurant, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? A nice Italian meal, a bit of penne. Yeah, a bit of casta. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice red with that. Uh, publication of the missing season 23 stories is boosted with confirmation of Philip Martin's Mission to Magnus, definite for a late 1990 release. Furthermore, Christopher H. Bidmead is now being approached with a view to novelising his own aborted original season 23 contribution, the aforementioned Penacasada, titled as ever, After a Planet. Negotiations to clear the ultimate adventure for publication are becoming ever more complex as the list of connected parties grows ever longer. As well as author Terence Dix, who is novelising the story anyway, the adaptation also has to be cleared with Mark Furness, Terry Nation, Jerry Davis and the BBC. Printed above is Alistair Pearson's proposed design for the remembrance of the Daleks novelization due for publication next January. Now that was a book, wasn't it? I love that book. That's just a, that's that's probably one of the high points in the target range in terms of uh, an original author taking his material and using the extra space to really broaden and deepen it uh, even before the new adventures came along. Philip Martin's Mission to Magnus. What a awful book that was and the the adaption by Big Finish wasn't much better material the material the material exactly the source <laughs> as we material. say Mark you can't polish a turd so but you can smell it in actual fact I managed to acquire uh, in inverted commas uh, <laughs> episodes of uh, Gangsters which Philip Martin oh. was instrumental in, in writing and I got most of the way through episode one before I thought I haven't taken enough LSD to understand what's going on here <laughs> But uh, we'll talk about that later, Mark, I think, off, off mic. How's Mike? Is he a bit off today? Very, very much off. Christopher Bidmead. Mark. Christopher H. Bidmead. Oh, sorry. Christopher H. Bidmead. I mm. think uh, his script was reused by Big Finish in one of their lost stories, but they couldn't use the master, so they used somebody else. Is that right? I can't remember. I don't think I've heard it, actually. So um, they couldn't use the master. What couldn't they use the master for? I don't know. I can't remember. Surely there's a master floating around that they can use. Gordon Tipple's not doing much these days. Surely they could have dug him up. They're keeping him in reserve just for whenever all the other people who've played the Masters uh, shuffle off their mortal coil. Watch out, Jeffrey and Derek. Briefly, uh, Mark Finesse is now considering the possibility of taking the ultimate adventure to New Zealand where sheep outnumber the human populace 5 to 1. Australia is still a strong contender for the end of the year, 
by which time Sylvester will be free from his uh, TV commitments. Meanwhile, Colin Baker's dressing room was broken into while at Brighton, and fans are asked to be on the lookout for his gold-coloured pocket watch, which is of great sentimental value to him. God, fans are pricks, aren't they, sometimes? I thought they might have been breaking in there looking for food. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the putting it in, in competitions, uh, they're continuing. Such a trope to say that it will preface everything about New Zealand by stating that uh, there are five times more sheep than people. It's a choice place, bro. <laughs> did um, did you hear of anything about... Uh, was Australia actually a serious contender for, the, for them to tour here? Yes, because Kylie and Jason were apparently being uh, floated as the companions for the stage version. Mm. I remember that August uh, publication, uh, No Idea, had an article about it. Uh, saying that it's coming to Australia and probably be in Melbourne, greatest city in Australia. So uh, why not? Now, when you say Kylie and Jason, of course, you you, you mean uh, Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan. Are there any others, Rob? Just for our foreign audience who's scratching their heads. In actual oh, fact, okay. uh, do you remember the Doug Anthony All-Stars? <laughs> Is this that song you're going to mention about? <laughs> Which I think you mentioned before. Was it, what was if, it called? The Doug Anthony All-Stars. Yeah, what was the song again? Remind uh, me. Well, it, it, Kylie and Jason uh, <laughs> are Freemasons. About, we, we are Freemasons, or they are Freemasons. <laughs> yes. If we can actually track down a copy of that song, Mark, we might stick it at the end of this record, at this episode, I think. YouTube is our very good friend. I've blocked it on every other device in my house uh, because the kids are driving me nuts with it, but on mine, it's still okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I, what I can do on that. There was talk, there was gossip, there was rumour, there was innuendo. Okay, lovely, lovely. And uh, it just didn't eventuate as per normal. The, the last little byline here is Kef McCulloch's rendition of the Doctor Who theme tune is now available as a two and a half minute uh, duration BBC single. That's still about two and a half minutes too long, isn't it, really? I think so, mate. Actually, that reminds me. Um, I'm going to get a bit all diddly dumb here because they do this a lot. Remember the, the song Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood? Yes. I heard it on the radio the other day and, and I've, I've sort of been thinking this for a while. At the end of it, there's a sound effect when the song's uh, reaching its uh, or a crescendo, the sound effect sounds very similar to the one that was used at the end of the Peter Howell uh, end credits of the Who theme as well. It's like this boom at the end. Ooh. I reckon uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood and Trevor Horn uh, leveraged it. I can't comment on that because I have poor memory about Relax, even though it's a great song. Uh, I do recall uh, having the house to myself one Saturday afternoon and uh, stumbling across uh, the Howl, the extended Howl version on one of the uh, Peter Davison DVDs and absolutely cranking up the television uh, while that just boomed out. That's my favourite rendition of the, of, the, of the Doctor Who theme tune. Awesome. How is it that we've got this far in the new series, Mark, and uh, Murray Gold is still... As of today, uh, doing the doing the music. What, what's going on there? I have no. Is it because idea. he's reliable? Is that simply it that he's got some ability or got ability and is reliable? So he's reliable because it sounds most of the same. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, it just it, it's. I mean, look, I understand that you know, if you're a fan of the X Files, Mark Snow scored. I think all 202 episodes of the original series. I think did the movies and has come back again for seasons 10 and will be for 11. So that's, you know, even more so than uh, than uh, than Murray Gold. But uh, 
it look it just goes against sort of you know what we understood in the um, in the t- in the classic series, isn't it? You know, to have a different composer for a different story every episode, basically. Needs to be mixed up. I mean, there was an article in the paper the other day, which let's be honest, did not. Uh, everybody was going on about how they're changing the TARDIS, changing the Sonic, changing the control room. Mm. Uh, haven't we seen all that before? Especially you know it all, that all happened in 1980, so they're all getting excited about that. But there was no mention that uh, Murray Gold is being. Uh, sent off to pastures new although apparently he did get married and there was pictures of uh, russell t and julia gardner uh, at the wedding he probably did his own wedding march for his wife but he had the uh, castrati back he did the uh <laughs> <laughs> the tennis well, there's, finale. There, there's not much other work for castrati is there mark really well <laughs> not since the uh david Tennant finale <laughs> oh jesus christ that was awful. Anyway, so actually, I read an interesting article many years ago about there is a recording of the last uh, known castrati in Italy uh, from yeah. the early 1900s, mm. uh, but obviously primitive recording techniques, you know. But uh, just just think mm. about it. Yeah, people were castrated uh, just to preserve their you know prepubescent voices, so you know wealthy aristocrats and popes could listen to them sing like angels. Just think about that. And they get reincarnated as Justin Bieber. <laughs> so, Mark, will we move on to the next one? Yes. This is DWB 69, September 1989. Uh, I have a funny story, actually. On on the road to my hometown... No, no, no. About the issue number or what? <laughs> on, the ro- on the way to my... Uh, is, it, is it back to Melbourne or is it up to my hometown? At, at one point, the road sign... All the road signs prior to that had um, the distances to towns and, and whatever uh, ending in zero or five. Some clown <laughs> on the road authority has, has indicated the distance from between where you are and the, the town named as 69 kilometers which you know country bumpkins i'm sure on the road on the road gang but there you go and if, if youngsters out there don't know what i'm talking about don't go and investigate it you will never ever ever be able to cleanse your mind and speaking of cleansing our mind dwdb 69 folks all change for season 27 the recording of season 26 came to an end on august 3rd and with it the climax of andrew cartmel's three-year tenure as script editor his time on the show will have seen Doctor Who swing from comic strip-style buffoonery to gritty gothic drama by the time season 26 has been aired. But to date, his contribution to the series is held in generally low esteem by the fans, as reflected in DWB's series survey results later this issue. The BBC, evidently pleased with his first television work, have awarded him the role as script editor of the 1990 season of Casualty, their highly rated hospital drama series, for which he is now starting to commission scripts. And his legacy on Doctor Who could be felt for some time yet, as he has already gathered together a series worth of story treatments for the 27th season, which will go ahead pending a major revamp by his incoming successor. Next subheading reads, Who After J&T? As one of the last remaining staff producers at the BBC, the big question, of course, is who would succeed him, him being J&T. In line with more and more of their output, season 27 could well see the BBC tendering the series to an independent production company, Oh, Netflix, if only who'd existed back then. <laughs> Which would result in the biggest shake-up since the introduction of colour to Doctor Who exactly 20 years ago. The reassuring link between season 26 and 27, if the show is tendered, will be Sylvester McCoy, who has signed for a fourth term as the Doctor, and Sophie Aldred, who, many will be delighted to hear, has agreed to stay for at least eight more episodes as Ace, after which she has asked to be written out of the series. The next few months, therefore, could prove to be the most important in terms of the series' direction and evolution for many years. Dun, dun, dun. Interesting that uh, Cartmel back then was held in 
uh, low regard, where now he's slightly higher. I think much higher. I, I think, yeah, I think especially yeah. the last two series of uh, the classic series run, mm. uh, you know, with the odd exception, uh, is really well well regarded. And um, it's interesting that he never managed to write a script for the series himself. I think he was one of the f- he was the only script editor who didn't you know write his own script. Is that would that be right for the classic series? I think you might be right. Off the top of my head, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we'll go with that. We'll go with yes. In the absence of any other evidence, we'll just agree with each other. All right. Yeah, look, it is It is interesting, but I mean, I, I suppose he sort of falls in with uh, the, the very low regard that season 24 had. Uh, I mean, you know, if you, if you read the letters section of DWB and you sort of the received wisdom at the time was Doctor Who was terrible in that series. And even though he sort of had nothing to do with the first story, I think that was sort of... Uh, edited by J and T. Edited air quotes. Yes, edited. but I mean, you sort of see his his impact even um, as early as the sort of the last part of, of season twenty four. Mm. But definitely, season twenty five and twenty six is, is is a step change, a complete step change up uh, in terms of quality of of the, the writing and the and the storylines and and just the whole feel of the show at that point. Yeah, look, there's been a major uh, reevaluation of of the McCoy era. Uh, the latest issue of the Cardiff Pravda has a fairly good uh, interview with McCoy and a look back on, on the 30 years of the seventh doctor. I mean McCoy's still not a great actor. No, he's not. As a, a, in in terms of his delivery? Well, we we all know well we all know that he can't <laughs> shout. Uh, uh, yeah. He, he doesn't do the shouty acting, the dramatic acting too well, but I mean quiet McCoy is is is, is compelling viewing. Mm. Um but it's it's interesting that the show had to sort of sink to its nadir in a, in a sense in season uh 24. For it to be able to rebound, I mean, it couldn't couldn't get any worse. And and I think Cartmel, even though he was you know young and relatively inexperienced, it's interesting when you have someone with ideas and especially fresh ideas, you can uh, you can turn things around. It just injects a whole sort of vigor. And I think you can say that those last two seasons, especially, were strong with ideas and and, and just sort of you know very uh, energetic in a sense i just like the last couple lines on this thing the next few months therefore could prove to be the most important in terms of the series direction and evolution for many years hmm. Hmm. Well, well well not really as it, i mean the show ended that's true but um i mean it, it had uh, the evolution didn't necessarily come from the tv show it came from fans themselves but didn't it really but that's right they took ownership of it because i mean the the organization from which it used to be produced by didn't uh, didn't give a crap about it to be honest so it was a happy marriage of the bbc wanting to exploit it commercially and mm. continue to exploit it commercially with fans who were eager to contribute uh, uh, creatively uh, themselves i mean they were, they were effectively you know they were shut out they were simply viewers like the, the rest of us but you know uh, with um, with virgin basically having an an open submission policy one of the very few publishers in the uk at that time i mean even i picked up a copy of their submission guidelines uh, at one point in the early 90s uh, anyone could contribute um and i mean that, that sort of spun out with bbv and, and uh endeavors like that did you send something into virgin personally? no i no no i was um i was in the middle of university and then getting a job and uh and i was content writing short fiction and i just you know it just never happened and yeah. Probably for the best, actually, for the readers out there. Yeah. Podcast thing was getting in the way even back then. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right then. Uh, DWB issue number 70, October 1989. Uh, the uh, headline on the cover screams, Sylvester predicts major changes. Well, yes, there were major changes because you'd be out of a job soon. Doctor Who production office deserted as BBC considers bids for independent production. As hinted in the last issue, Doctor Who is at the dawning of a new era as it heads into the 1990s. Producer JNT has all but left the production office having been in the hot seat for almost 10 years and is tidying up his last few odds and ends connected with the series from his home. June Collins, who has worked almost solidly on the show since 82 as a production associate, is currently balancing the books on the post-production work on season 26, uh, which is nearing completion, after which she too is moving on followed by Secretary Claire Kinmont. It is then likely the production office will be probably closed for good as the BBC begin considering options for Doctor Who to be taken over by an independent company, as exclusively predicted by DWB as far back as July 1988. No Who in 1990. Of most concern to fans will be the mounting speculation that in order to pave the way for tenderisation, sounds like a meat process, uh, Doctor Who may not be seen on the UK, uh, screens at all during 1990 because of the time required to adapt its new production process. This would, however, give Doctor Who movie, now purportedly back in production, extra appeal should it actually arrive on the big screen before the end of the year. Concerned is the next uh, byline. Although it could still be produced in-house at the BBC, perhaps even by JNT, uh, should his secret project fall through whatever the outcome, there are many concerned that the shape of season 27 uh, will take, not least Sylvester McCoy, who was contracted for its entire run and with Sophie Aldred having signed for the first eight episodes. At the Honeycomb Convention at Swindon in late August, Sylvester conceded that there were big changes on the way though he appeared disturbed that he had not been apparently been informed as to what these changes actually are. DWB intends to keep you fully updated on any progress. Well, there wasn't much progress, was there? It's interesting in that article, Mark, uh, there's, a, there's a little yellow box uh, which contains the following. I'll just read it. Are the BBC about to call time on Doctor Who? So the whole tenor of, of, of this article, it's a bit of speculation by, informed speculation, I think, by DWB. Uh, and I, I, I believe at that point that they knew that, that, that uh, Doctor Who was effectively dead. Uh, addressing a recent science fiction convention, TV Time Lord Sylvester McCoy said, The BBC don't want to make Doctor Who. They aren't interested in the series that's lasted 26 years. The star suggested the show's only hope of survival was, was with an independent production company. The BBC won't officially reveal its fate until November, but insiders are predicting there will be no Doctor Who in 1990. The current season sees the departure of the series' longtime producer John Nathan Turner and script editor Andrew Cartmel. So it's interesting that even though uh, McCoy had been signed on for a fourth year, the driving uh, influences on the series, uh, you know, the producer, the long-standing producer and, and, and the script editor of two and a bit years standing, were at the door. So it's, it's hard to, even though there were storylines and we've all seen those articles in DWB and I think they've even been produced uh, for uh, big finish, uh, those ideas developed into radio plays. It, it's hard to see how they could have actually sort of picked up the reins of the new people coming in immediately and, and gone there. And you'd think that um, a new producer, a new script editor, wouldn't necessarily want to uh, sort of fall in behind uh, the scripts that Cartmel had sort of been shivying along to completion for, for 1990. But 
uh, I suppose uh, we'll never know. Because the BBC was serious, they would have had the tender all sorted out well before season 26 started. So have mm. some sort of transition running at the same time to really sort of hit production, almost ground running. And the fact that they're just dithering on their side, they were looking at lots and lots of different tenders and rejecting most of them. And uh, look, there was no interest really. That was basically, let's get the show up to the 25th anniversary, get as much mileage out that of that as we can. We'll give it one more year. And that's it. If you watch the survival DVD, I think Endgame is a documentary. They just weren't interested. You know, they wanted to do other things, but more highbrow things. At some point in the, in the near future, or the, the near to medium term, the BBC may have the same uh, mentality again. That this is a show that's been on for twelve years now. Uh, it, uh, it it it's it's now past its peak. Um, look, who knows with uh, Jodie Whittaker and 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 uh, Mr. Chibnall. Uh, in the frame, uh, it may start climbing the, the, the peaks of popularity once again. But uh, at, look, at some point, all shows come to an end, uh, unless you named Coronation Street, <laughs> which was being broadcast when the last of the dinosaurs died, apparently, and it's still out there. It's still going, yeah. Look, it'll be interesting to see, um, a bit more morbid in a sense, it'll be interesting to see the fan reaction to when Doctor Who... Um, goes off the air if it if it does uh, because if if <laughs> i occasionally dip into our uh, the posts on our twitter feed mark and we appear to attract uh, have a lot of new series followers because there's a lot of emotions being expressed and i i fear for some of the uh, the new series fans especially the american ones I, I think the suicide rate may actually bump up when and if uh, doctor who uh, i'm joking of course when and if doctor who goes off the air but uh, can you see um, if it does go off the air in terms of the bbc mark would would would, uh, would they be willing to farm it out to i don't know like a, a streaming service an amazon a netflix uh, you know or 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 another tv production house for them to do and sort of uh, and then contract out absolutely i think they'll give it a rest for a year or two and then reboot it again like they have with star trek discovery which mm. i've started watching it and for the first time in, in in many years i've actually enjoyed watching star trek it's a cross between the movies and the battlestar galactica reboot for me and it's a completely new team you know they haven't got the the jnt of star trek rick berman uh, anywhere near it thank god and i'm enjoying it so absolutely mm. i think they're going to make money from it regardless uh, yeah. It'll be a co-production, and the production values will probably be oh, even better than what they are now. Have you heard that the last series of Game of Thrones, the budget per episode is fifteen million US dollars? That is cuckoo. That is, I mean, you know, you, you read articles and say it's the most popular TV show in the world at the moment. Mm. Um, so I suppose they're going to go out with a bang, but uh, it's it's Doctor Who gets by on what maybe two or three million per episode, one I to think two, it'd be even less than that. I thought one one to two maybe we'll yeah. go with one to two. Um, yeah. But but fifteen million dollars for a television that's remarkable. Um, mm. Did you hear the story that for the series, the next series of, of Game of Thrones, that they're locking the security so tight that they're going to put feed the lines to the actors so they're actually not getting scripts they're going to put an earpiece in their ear and recite the lines so they can act uh, yes. fake news fake news all right let's move on now speaking of fake news here is the hourly telepress from uh, sonic screwdriver issue 57 october slash november 1989 give us a bit of background to this because i can see your name as being one of the compilers <laughs> that's why i said fake news basically it was our version of just 
compiling the news from various different sources and, and regurgitating it as our own. So this is the Antipodian Gallifrey Guardian from DWM where you bring the news articles together. Yeah, it's a bit of Gallifrey Guardian, but a Gallifrey base towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the letter section later. From various sources, also I gave it a bit of a local flavour as well, talk about uh, ABC screening dates and things like that. So, okay. And where, where did most of the articles come from? Where were they sourced? Was it like, uh, say, New Idea, for instance, or... DWM or a bit more highbrow than that it was basically leveraged expensive phone calls to the BBC to the UK in the dead of night or Pirate Pete used to send me um, newspaper articles and things like that we did have the occasional phone call but look some of it was leveraged out of DWB uh, CT uh, some of it was made up <laughs> I'll be honest with you <laughs> especially about the book adaption of Sharda I made that up actually no it, I, I made it up but it did become uh, reality so there you go yes there is there is no fake news Mark there's just real reality this bit of fake news starts off with season 26 starts badly I think it's a bit of an understatement isn't it Rob as mentioned last issue season 26 did indeed begin screening in the first week of September Wednesday the 6th at 7.35pm once again pitted against Coronation Street the aforementioned Coronation Street. However, the show has fared badly in the initial ratings, with episode one of Battlefield not even making it into the top 100 shows for the week. Can you imagine the, the breast beating today, Mark, if Doctor Who dropped out of the top 100? Well, that sounds the familiar, hundred, doesn't it? <laughs> the 100th show in Battlefield's premiere week scored a low 3.2 million, meaning, therefore, that Battlefield's rating was even lower. Coronation Street, naturally, hit the top 10 with a very respectable 15.3 million viewers. There are TV people on the sixth floor of the BBC who would kill their firstborn in the hope of getting anything like that. Uh, episode two did a little better, reaching 92 on the on, on the charts and getting ratings of about 3.9 mil. Episode three got 3.6, and four million people watched episode four. The poor ratings have been blamed on a lack of publicity. Oh dear. Let's get this straight, Mark. Is it true that in the latest series of Doctor Who, there was an episode that went out that actually got less? than Battlefield. Is that right? Was it Eaters of Light? I think I got less than, than Battlefield, yes. Which is ironic because um, she had a story in season 26, didn't she? Yes, there's a certain uh, symmetry. There is. Now, moving on. Mm-hmm. However, the ratings seem to have thrown doubt over the continuation of the series. At the moment, the Doctor Who production office stands empty with Andrew Cartmel departing to script edit the BBC hospital drama Casualty. You didn't get that from DWP, did you, Mark? <laughs> what do they say in the house of cards uh you might very well think that i couldn't possibly comment yes before leaving he commissioned all season 27 stories and john nathan turner has also unofficially departed the office this all sounds very familiar look as we've always said mark just swap out uh, Stephen moffat for john nathan turner sans the objectionable sexual habits Uh, (laughs) they've got similar hairstyles haven't they I hear that their hair had a separate office for them itself. All right, we're enjoying this far too much. The BBC itself is in disarray with programs being tendered out to a variety of production companies. Doctor Who is also one of the programs offered for tender, with a bid by J&T's production company, which produced the pantomimes, reportedly being rejected. There's a surprise. (laughs) Funny that. (laughs) That's me editorialising. Verity Lambert, original producer of the show in 1963. Did you people not know or didn't think that people knew who Verity Lambert was? (laughs) Helping people along. That's it. Shivering them along. Verity Lambert has also been approached by the BBC for her own production company, Cinema Verity, but she has apparently rejected the offer. Uh, Unconfirmed rumours were that the show had been axed. There is no real evidence that this is the case. 
but we'll just mention it anyway, of course. <laughs> but probably more accurate is a report that the BBC is desperate to get rid of the show, one way or another. If a private production company does get Doctor Who then, it seems unlikely that any episodes could be produced in time for transmission next year. If this is the case, it will result in a similar situation to that of 1986, with Doctor Who being rested for 18 months. The only firm news is that Sylvester McCoy has been signed for another 14 episodes, and Sophie Aldred has been signed for another 8. What a well-written article that was. Good work, mate. Is that actually yours? It was like um, David Agnew. It was a combination, I think. It was like me doing a first draft... And everybody else having a go after it, really. Yeah, David Agnew is credited for uh, Invasion of Time, is that right? Invasion of Time, City of Death, Episode 14 of Tribal Time Lord. <laughs> <laughs> no. When I was researching this, DWB took great delight in saying that uh, Doctor Who nearly got the same ratings as an episode of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Dooby-Doo. They were sticking the knife in, weren't they, really? They were. At that, at that point, it was just dancing around a corpse, basically. All right, let's move on to DWB 71 in November 1989 and on the uh, headline again on the front cover a lot of headlining screaming out at you uh, these issues of DWB confirmed no Doctor Who in 1990 exclamation mark Doctor Who back on hiatus after season 26 Doctor Who is finished as a BBC produced series in line with a recent policy of increasingly contracting its programs to an independent production company OB unit disbanded Indeed, no drama series for autumn 1990 have yet been scheduled for in-house production, and it seems likely that comedy and current affairs will be the only programs to remain at the BBC. Already, the BBC has disbanded its OB unit, which used to record Doctor Who on location, and in future OB facilities to be used for sporting events such as Wimbledon will be hired when needed. All this streamlining comes as a result of a directive issued in 1987 by Director-General Michael Checkland for the BBC to tighten its purse strings. Now, this all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This is all happening again in the last uh, maybe five, six years, the BBC. I think public broadcasters of the world around, uh, they're probably the first to feel... Uh, the uh, the winds of austerity, uh, as it were. Blowing in the right direction? Uh, well, uh, for the BBC at that point, uh, blowing in a different direction. New hiatus. Uh, the BBC intends to keep news of this uh, new unavoidable hiatus quiet to avoid another outcry, similar to which followed Doctor Who's cancellation in 1985. And the only hope fans have of seeing any Doctor Who on television in the 1990 is for the BBC to re- screen a season repeats. There is also the possibility of Coast to Coast finally commencing production of the Doctor Who movie of which they've now purchased the buyout rights and releasing it before the end of next year. And with Sylvester McCoy now available next spring, he would be the obvious candidate for the lead role, as well as tying in with the show's return for 1991. Come on, if you're going to do a Doctor Who movie, you would want to get a very big star as a lead. Name me a, uh, a, a charismatic leading British actor, male, uh, in 1990, who could have filled the role. Michael mm. Palin? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is it too early for Hugh Grant? Yeah, it was. It was. It was nineteen ninety four. He was too young by then. Yeah. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, maybe. He might not have been suitable. I'm just plucking names out that I can sort of associate with that particular period. Ah, oh, Alan Rickman. Ah, oh, of course. He was on the rise then. He would have been perfect. He was the, the the sheriff in Robin Hood a couple of years later, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and they were thinking about getting him for the TV movie as a master until they. Uh, 
plumbed new depths and got Eric Roberts. But uh, there was sort of uh, intimating that they're trying to keep all the news about the uh, cancellation hush-hush so they wouldn't have to go through a repeat of what happened in 85 and especially well, a repeat of a 1990 remix of uh, Doctor in Distress, maybe. There's a little article here, again, I think uh, from the same uh, issue, DWB71. John Nathan Turner is reportedly furious that unedited copies of episodes one and two of Ghostlight got into the hands of several well-known fans prior to transmission. (coughs) 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 A production crew member is thought to be responsible for circulating the tapes, which were minus music and effects. Further to CTs, uh, again, Celestial Toy Rooms, a recent headline piece titled BBC to Investigate Video Pirates, BBC Enterprises was like it known, the story is pure fabrication. They do not run an investigations unit and neither are they clamping down on the fan video network. There's a relief. But they should have set up a bloody missing episodes unit and uh, gone tropes in the world, shouldn't they? Well, yes. The, the uh, Look, you know, I mean, if they had an investigations unit, the whole Marco Carmaggio era of the, <laughs> the Peter Capaldi uh, tenure would, would have been resolved far, far quicker and actually not actually have happened at all. Yeah. Oh, here's an article. Mm. DWB 72, December 89. Merry Christmas, 1989. And it's goodbye from him. BBC pledges to take Doctor Who through the 90s. Do you really want to read this? I mean, (laughs) it's a furphy. New BBC head champions Doctor Who's cause. The recently appointed new head of serials at the BBC, Prita Krajine, is quickly emerging as the biggest supporter of Doctor Who since David Reed left the post in 1986. Although he's been in a job for only a short time, his action has already prompted the BBC to issue a statement putting paid the unfounded press speculation that Doctor Who is to rest due to atrocious ratings. Statement begins by saying, Doctor Who is one of the BBC's most important programs. There is no reason why it should not last another 26 years. Krajine continues the statement by saying he is looking for the best possible way to take Doctor Who through the 90s. Wow. Is that actually just fake news? Is that the, is that the original fake news, Mark? Fake news with a turd on top. They were not going to do that. No. Krajine and Powell wanted shot of it. They wanted to do other things. This is a way of sort of uh, keeping the fans like having a donkey with a carrot and a stick. Mm. Isn't it really? Mm. No, I agree. Okay, so from the same issue of DWB, we have a little article here. Coast to Coast, who were the film production company responsible for not producing a Doctor Who film ever. Uh, Coast to Coast <laughs> denies Sutherland rumours. And there's a lovely picture of Donald Sutherland and... Sylvester McCoy together. Well, not literally together, but uh, side by side. Now, Coast to Coast have asked us to publish the following statement, as if Coast to Coast couldn't publish their own statements. Uh, Recent press reports claiming that Donald Sutherland has been cast as the film Doctor are totally fictitious. Coast to Coast would like to clarify that no one can be cast until a deal has been finalised with a studio to actually make the film. Although no one has formally been approached to play the lead, several actors are being considered and Donald Sutherland does appeal. Also untrue are the suggestions that the film will show the Doctor in any sort of physical relationship with his companion. We wish to assure you he does no such thing. This announcement was prompted by an erroneous news article published in the November issue of Starburst and which was subsequently picked up by the more irresponsible areas of the press (laughs) and Radio 1. A typical example being that printed here from Scotland's mass-selling daily record, which says, and this is the heading, now it's the sexy boozy Doctor Who. Uh, uh, so uh, what we got? Yeah, so there's a bit of nonsense here. Uh, blah blah blah. We uh, yes. Anyway, we won't go into that. But Donald Sutherland in this little photo, hair akimbo, <laughs> looking either aggressive or ready to do something. I don't know. 
And he's wearing a scarf. He's wearing a scarf. So he's got that Tom Baker vibe going, which all news articles should have, Mark. All news articles yeah. should have. But, you know, you can't say uh, Coast to Coast didn't do anything because, as you said, they actually issued a uh, press release. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which is about as close as they were going to get. Yeah. And maybe Philip Siegel read that and goes... Uh, the physical relationship with his companion. That sounds like an interesting idea. Let's go with that. It's as if a movie wouldn't have any romantic um, angles. Come on. Especially mm. a TV movie. You've got mail. All right, now let's move on to the letters section, Mark, where we uh, pick the finest gems. Yeah, so this one is from DWB 68, August 1989, uh, by Maxwell Rowan Falkirk. At last, a long overdue feature on Who videos. It was interesting to read that releasing the Pertwee stories would be difficult. True, a lot of them are mishmash of different black and white slash colour episodes, line formats, film and video masters. But I'm sure there must be equipment around that can clean up these episodes. With the new computer and digital techniques improving all the time, it may not be too long before it is possible for TV images to be digitally cleaned and sharpened, improving the quality quite considerably. On a recent edition of Tomorrow's World, there was a machine that could improve blurred photographs to an astonishing degree, and if the techniques could be applied to video images, the results could be remarkable. I feel in the next five to ten years, the BBC could be in a position to release quality copies of the Terror of the Ordons and the Demons, or even broadcast them. This guy is bloody Nostradamus. Maxwell Nostradamus Ryan. He's predicted the restoration team. He has. He should have asked for a fiver for every release. At the end of it, he goes, So the chances of the Silurians and the Mind of Evil, etc. being released aren't too bleak. Obviously, the price will be increased because of the work needed to improve these episodes, but I'm sure most video uh, Who fans will be prepared to buy the videos. Take note, BBC Video. And they certainly did. <laughs> we did. We bought the videos and we bought the DVDs. <laughs> Uh, again and again <laughs> well I didn't buy all the, all the videos but the, the DVDs with a couple of exceptions I have that guy is Nostradamus so well done Maxwell Maxwell if there are any other predictions that you made that came true please get in touch with us on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday do you think you predicted Trump I don't think anybody could have predicted Trump <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, no, let's, let's move on from yes. that. It just hurts. All right, uh, the next one is DWB <coughs> 69. Yeah, dear. <laughs> yes, JT is the worst producer, says the heading. This is a Jonathan Burt from Surrey. Who is Marvel trying to fool with their survey results in 150? That must be issue 150. It was. True, JT has given us some great stories, but for every great story, there have been at least five substandard ones, thereby conf- confusing opinion with. <laughs> I don't know, facts up. Anyway, uh, his weakness as a producer is made clear by the fact that the script editors in his era have done all the guiding of the direction of the program. JNT did nothing to prevent Cartmel misinterpreting the point of the show. The only consistency in his era has been the artificially overglossed production values. These are just a few reasons why JNT is the worst producer. Now, the editor goes on to uh, have his say. The lovely font, Mark. I think that's italics. Is that correct? It's italics, yes. Soften the message, isn't he? Tart it up, maybe. Yeah, it's often. Mm. As our survey results show this issue, most of fandom would appear to agree with Jonathan. <laughs> Despite the appalling display of sycophancy JNT enjoys from DWM and the leading Who gloss zines who receive cosy location invites in return. Oh. I wonder who he could be referring to, but anyway. I wonder what magazine uh, he's got in the frame for that. Oh. Boom. Oh. Good work, mate. Yeah, thank you. Commercial radio, here I come. 
Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was about that uh, Dido game poll that had. Uh, remember, they had uh, most popular doctor, Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, you get look. You get that. I think I'm sure there were DWM surveys a few years back that said Matt Smith was the most favourite or favourite doctor. Yeah. It just what goes around goes around. This is about the ultimate adventure play. Mm. This one is actually by a Mervyn Sedgwick in Warwickshire. Hello, Mervyn. He says. The play was a total waste of time from beginning to end. None of the cast had any acting abilities whatsoever, and I felt throughout as though I was watching understudies from the Neighbours cast. That's still too generous. Uh, Colin Baker's performance was desperate, to say the least, almost as bad as his television version, and it's almost a relief he was sacked after watching this. Wow. Mervyn takes aim and doesn't miss, does he? And then John Ross says uh, he attended uh, in Scotland. He says, I attended a Tuesday evening performance of The Ultimate Adventure in Edinburgh. Things were looking pretty grim 10 minutes before curtain up with the barest sprinkling of people in the massive auditorium. But I believe the fans present would extend some sort of welcome to the performers and that this would help create a little atmosphere. Unfortunately, those suffering from, as Andy Thomas says, fan menopause were present. Some in the front row made no effort to enjoy themselves and made even less effort to give decent applause at the curtain call. Such shabby behaviour disgusted me, and if any of those members from the uh, Ragnarok fans are the Edinburgh local group, then they should be doubly ashamed of themselves. Exclamation mark. They're always angry in Scotland, aren't they? We didn't get independence. No, and they still won't. A certain Paul Cornell from Wiltshire. Hello, Paul, if you're not listening, which he doesn't to us. Well... Why don't you give us permission, Paul, to write from your articles? Why don't you turn us down, Paul? Come on, mate. You were a fan once before you ascended to some better plane, but anyway. DW these days is certainly a quality product with some wonderful articles heavy on facts. He's been drinking again, hasn't he, Mark? (laughs) If that was all... (laughs) All right. Uh... If that was all there was to it, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it thoroughly, despite its annoying size and high-quality printing. Pieces like Directing Battlefield and the book cover feature, DWB69, deserve lavish praise. However, Mark, just as an aside, is this Cornell insulating himself from any you know, adverse coverage? Oh, it was in 89, so it was well before he started writing professionally, so I take that back. Now this is the kiss, then the kick. Ah, I see. Here we go. Butters them up and then goes for the smash. However, isn't it about time the editorial content stopped infesting every aspect of the magazine? There's a difference between intelligent criticism, something that's sorely lacking anywhere in the glossy fanzines in one direction or another, and the kind of rabid, it's either a classic or it's crap mentality that ruins your letters page. At the moment, most of your readers are labouring under a gross delusion concerning Andrew Cartmel's fascination with comics. To put it simply, Cartmel is, in brackets was, into the atmosphere of continuity and mythos that comic universes are made from. The equation between a superpower doctor and a script editor who enjoys comics is a totally silly one. And as for this master plan business, well, maybe someone could tell Douglas Strong and Dave Smith what's going on after it's all over, eh? And maybe they're previous letter writers. I'm not after balance, terrible Mary Whitehouse word, just people putting forward their views without abuse, surprised that anybody could ever disagree with them, or mindless cruelty. Finally, a few vo- viewpoints of my own. To paraphrase Bill Durham, I believe in Andrew Cartmel, the black and white A5 fanzine, and that villains should stumble into their own traps. I believe in free speech, unedited letters, and the small of Sophie Aldred's back. What the hell's going on there? <laughs> the small of Sophie Aldred's back? What, she got a small back? I, I don't know. And yes, I st- that's where the tramp stamp uh, eventually appeared in the 90s, mate. Uh, and yes, I still believe in Dwoss, but the Dwoss no longer believes in me. 
P.S. No way is season 24 the worst ever. I think it's one of the better ones. Clearly on the grog there, mate. It's clearly writing a new adventure. I think so. Now we, we uh, pile into uh, DWB 71, which is November 89, Mark. Yes, that's right. Uh, criticism of a sycophancy claim by a certain Richard Bignall, he the Proteus editor. It sounds like a graphic design software, doesn't it, really? Uh, it's a nice little fanzine. I've got a few uh, copies at home. Oh, have you? I think that you went a little too far in your editorial comment to Jonathan Burt's letter in DWB uh, 69 concerning the appalling display of sycophancy JNT enjoys from DWM and the leading who glossines who receive cosy location invites in return. Sycophancy, as you are probably aware, means imparting flattery to someone. Obviously, I can't speak for the frame, as I'm not involved in the production of that fanzine. However, my involvement in the editorial team of Private Who and Proteus at least allows me to answer from our quarter. I would strongly disagree that Private Who magazines are sycophantic towards JNT. We believe that you gain respect by showing it. JNT is a professional, and it is his job to produce a program. Whatever our personal feelings about his achievements, we aim to respect the position he has the same way we do with anyone who was involved with the program. If the fact that we decide to be objective in these matters, rather than strongly subjective as DWB is, it yields us to be in attendance at various locations and studios during the making of the program, then so much better for our readership. Let's appreciate the program in friendship, not adversity. That's a very nice sort of kumbaya letter there, isn't it, really? Pouring oil on troubled waters there, isn't Richard? Actually, just, just before we go on, Richard Bignall, you know what Phil Morris is doing. You know <laughs> what he's been up to. You know what is going on. It's incumbent upon you, Richard Bignall, to tell the Doctor Who world what is going on because it's not enough to say that it's Phil Morris's story like you've been doing with your RT confrères all these years. Give it up for the fans, Richard, or go home. If you can do it before January, that'd be lovely, though. Yes, exactly. Now, here's one. Cartmel versus Sayward uh, by Robert John Williamson from Leeds. Hello, Robert John Williamson. Hope you're well. Reading your magazine, I don't think Andrew Cartmel will be missed. Surely the blame for Fenwick overrunning lies firmly in his court. Didn't the scripts seem in need of tailoring when he received them? Ian Briggs interviewed in a new fantasy zone stresses the importance of the structure of the story. I suppose that will be destroyed once it is chopped to fit the schedules. But before we award Cartmel the most incompetent script editor award of all time title, compare him to Sayward. At least in Cartmel stories, the Doctor gets involved quickly. The companion has something to do apart from being lusted after slimy baddies, and we don't have elements from the show's past every five minutes. Part of our Christmas episode, we're going to have a bit of a discussion on Mr. Sayward, aren't we? Really try and rebalance things slightly, maybe. Maybe I might get you to read uh, this letter out, Rob, because this is from Sonic Screwdriver issue 57, uh, October. November 89. Now, in our last drag from the archives, I read a letter out that I wrote when I was 17, which I uh, naughtily said the word uh, photocopy extract in reference to data extract. Just remind the listeners, data extract. It's the uh, Doctor Who fan club of uh, Australia newsletter. It's still going. For the next two or three pages, there's a lots of, lot of angst that I caused. There's lots of letters. This is all before forums, so it's a bit of a slog. But there's one letter here that uh, I'm sure Rob would like to read out. Now, the heading is DE versus SS question mark round one. I'm not going to read the person's name. If you're listening, Mr... Blot Garden Gnome. I hope you're well. <laughs> Rob, would you care to read it out in your dulcet tones, please? Given it's one month shy of almost 28 years, uh, yes. I'm sure uh, he's still with us, hopefully. All right, he, he begins. I'm writing to basically indicate my annoyance at the recent comments 
uh, in brackets, I avoid the word debate as that would indicate solid arguments over quality and quantity of data extract. Firstly, data extract has never tried to be anything other than a simple newsletter, and that is either because I push it in or Dallas gets his name on it. So secondly, the malicious remark uh, by Mark, our very own Mark, Calling data extract photocopy extract is one of the most ill-informed and basically stupid comments I've ever seen from fandom. Jeez, he's taken it to you, Mark. Mark fails completely to realise that DE comes out with news before anyone else does, many times before DWB or anyone else in England has ever seen, released or discovered it. DE has consistently been the most reliable and up-to-date of news information will continue to be. The news generally in DE is no more than one and a half weeks old by the time it is in the letterbox. <laughs> Since a phone call to England the week before printing gets the most recent information available. This is like Sean Spicer, isn't it? <laughs> If Mark calls original news a photocopy, then he is either a fool or is having a go at the Australian Doctor Who fan club and Dallas. I expect it is the latter since fools don't watch Doctor Who, exclamation mark. Jeez, Mark, how were you feeling when you read this? Keep going. You're in the corner, weren't you? In the fetal position. As far as the comment about DE being expensive, this can be considered true. And that was a comment by Daniel Brown. Uh, Dan- in a previous issue, obviously. Daniel assumes, however, that DE is trying to be a sonic screwdriver. It is not. It answers the need for up-to-date news, which is an expensive process. Each telephone call to the data extract hotline. <laughs> hotline. Come on. <laughs> it's like it's like Batman. No, yes, Commissioner. He's got the red phone. Oh, it's like it's like the phone connecting Washington and and the Kremlin. <laughs> uh, it costs well over fifty dollars. That's fifty Australian dollars. Cost which has to be recouped. If you want articles from, from fanzines such as Junkyard or Sonic, you don't get DE. But most fans, 90%, get DE because it provides the news people want. Daniel and Mark might just as well argue that people watch television news not because it is news, but because it is such a such great fun. That is nonsense. People get DE for its news and occasional articles. And in terms of Sonic, perhaps it is more of a photocopier of fact than anything else, since many a time the news from DE has been happily strewn all over its pages. Finally, the business about offset printing is a little too much for me, as most good fan publications are done this way. What gets me is that some people in fandom are just annoyed that DE is so successful at giving people the news they want, while others merely try to walk in its footsteps. Perhaps there is no need to keep trying anymore. Oh dear, Mark. I did draft a, a, a letter back to, uh, to Sonic back in the day they vetoed they wrote this little bit at the end of it this editorial comment so do you want to read that out rob again in your dulcet tones yes so in, in bold printed beneath is a oh, what an arrogant and bombastic letter exclamation mark this would have to be one of the worst of the batch concerning de versus ss photocopy extract refers to the quality of the printing and the reproduction of the pictorial material not the news Never once did Mark or anyone else compare Sonic to DE until we got a reaction from New South Wales, that is. Mark never stated that SS, Sonic Screwdriver, was better than DE, which was something that all of you read into Mark's letter. Mark also commented on the inaccuracy of some of the news printed in DE. This is the bane of any fanzine producer, as I'm sure Dallas will agree. Data Extract quite happily used the latest issue of The Frame, both for pictures and news, so DE is just as guilty as SS in terms of filching news, it works both ways. There's a slap back there. It's interesting what consumed fandom when there was nothing on television to watch, wasn't there, Mark? Yeah, when we got that letter, I just remember laughing at it. And then the small letters <laughs> appeared from New South Wales. So I think they all got together at, uh, at their uh, respective club meetings or pubs, whatever, and just started uh, writing letters. Uh, the great thing about, you know, 28 years later, I don't hold a grudge much. <laughs>
No grudges, Mark, no grudges. Never forget, never forgive. Let's bring it up, slam back up to date. We had a Facebook post from uh, Alan Peter Blot, uh, who was commenting about our uh, Nothing Compares to Who podcast. I actually think my singing at the beginning that turned people off, so I apologise for that. Uh, his comments uh, on Facebook, he said, Thank you for your podcast. It was great to hear your thoughts and feedback. I was able to see the first episode in 1963. To see the repeat next week due to the assassination of President Kennedy was a miracle. I was eight. I still love it. As for the future, as you noted, it is a story that matters. Let's hope the uh, stories meet our ex- expectations. Thank you, Alan. Now, I went back to Alan and said, well, wow, what, are your, what were your thoughts and memories of you watching The Unearthly Child back in the day? So he posted a video on our Facebook page. So I grabbed a, a C30 tape and I taped the audio <laughs> from the radio, as it were, and take it away, Alan. You emailed me or Facebooked me a question saying what did I remember and what did I think of uh, watching the first episode of Doctor Who. That was an awful long time ago. I'm 61, nearly 62. And so in November 63, I would have been eight. So a long time has passed since then. I don't remember the advertising. I'm sure there was. I think I had a copy of maybe the preamble from the Radio Times. There was very little on TV. There was only probably two radio, two TV programmes, BBC and independent television, ITV. I would notice that, as personally, as an eight-year-old, um, for a year before, I'd already been watching some science fiction, the Jerry Anderson Fireball XL5. I'd been collecting and reading comics in English, or the English comics, it would have been things like Lion, uh, with such characters, for example, like Archie the Robot. Um, and by 63, I was buying Marvel and DC comics. Um, so all the early Fantastic Four um, and, and that type of thing, and the X-Men were just coming out. In Spider-Man. But I remember quite vividly the excitement of wanting to watch this uh, television programme, Doctor Who. It was right from the very start of the programme, the recessing black and white, fading into the actual programme itself. I now know quite simple effects, but with the music, for an eight years old, it was uh, just amazing. I also remember the school and Susan, and all the things relating to that. One of the things I was going to point out is that some years ago, you never saw a television programme once it was produced and sent out. Obviously, this was quite different, as fate would have it, that Doctor Who was, was the same day as the assassination of President Kennedy, which meant, and I can't tell you how excited I was, the programme that I'd seen the week before was going to be repeated unheard of. If you went to see a movie, you just would never see it, unlikely to ever see it on TV again. Um, the big movies at Christmas were from movies that were at least five years old, big premieres. My grandchildren, or the grandsons anyway, are just amazed at that as a fact that it's released almost instantly. But the television programme I just thought was outstanding. I was hooked from the very beginning. I had the badges. I had this great big black and gold Dalek. Um, I collected the set. Um, I can't remember what was in them now and I don't know where they are. They've gone into the time and probably into landfill by now. I remember the Daleks. Outstandingly wonderful. I also remember things like the Zabi and the Minoctra. 
So do I remember the programme from 1963? Yes, I do. Do I remember every episode? No, I don't. But I knew that I loved this programme. And obviously, when Patrick Troughton came, and then the regeneration, it just went on to bigger and better things. Yes, the special effects could have been better. They didn't have the same budget as the Americans, but the stories were just entrancing. And for an eight, nine, ten-year-old, I just loved them. And that's a love that's progressed on and, and, and is still there. I don't have huge amounts of DVDs of all the episodes. I keep them as much as I can digitally, but it's still wonderful. One of the things that I love about this, and especially the BBC, is that they've allowed... The fan audios are just outstanding. They give a whole range and a whole feel for a wonderful character. It gives a spectrum of colour that sometimes the programmes themselves on the BBC may lack. But altogether, I love it. So do I remember it? Yes, I do. Did it catch me right from the very beginning? Yes, it did. My son um, now has two girls. Uh, the first one, Leia Rose. Leia because he went and said, oh, look at my little princess. And Rose, well, Doctor Who fan. And second little girl, Daisy. Well, obviously, there are Star Wars um, connotations for that. My grandchildren still buy me Doctor Who gifts. They buy me the new Sonic screwdrivers. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure speaking. I hope this has helped in some way. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks very much for that, Alan. Some great memories there of those initial early episodes. Thank you very much, Alan. Much appreciated. Uh, it, it must be very few people uh, who are fans today who have, who uh, watched or began watching the show uh, when it first screened in 1963. It's a frighteningly long time ago now, I think so. In response to uh, the news that we uh, we let slip last uh, podcast, mm. uh, look, our cold dead hearts are being warmed uh, a lot by the tweets and, and the DMs and the emails that we received since the news about the podcast went out. A couple of special mentions to the guys from New to Who published a very humbling Facebook post about our podcast. We also received this email from Andy Taylor, uh, not the uh, guitarist from Duran Duran, who said, Hi, Bad boys! Bad boys! I can honestly say that I'm gutted you decided to knock the podcast on ahead. But as you say, it's best to go out on a high rather than churning out the same old commentaries, reviews and back padding that others do. Who's he talking about there? Throw a dart and hit any target you want, mate. <laughs> Continue to enjoy your last few podcasts and hope in the future you'll produce a special here and there. Do you have any plans to appear on any other podcasts, either together or individually? Uh, many thanks for hours of entertaining listening. You'll be missed. Cheers, Andy. Uh, thank you very much for that, Andy. The main reason we're, we're stopping, really, look, the secret's out that Rob is becoming the new head of publicity for Big Finish. So he's <laughs> off to do that job, aren't you, Rob? Yes, the truth has finally come out. Well, the truth is you see it anyway, Mark. So. Yes, we love Fanglaze, that's your byline. We haven't discounted the fact that doing specials, as we said last last podcast, we'll, if, if Phil drops some other load, we'll do something. We might have something bubbling along. I think what will happen is we'll stop in January, February, March, and April. We'll go, oh, this is a nice break. And then it will take something that I'll hear along the lines of that's a Wedding and River song's the best episode of Doctor Who ever and it'd be like a jihad to me <laughs> and say Rob was strapping the mics back on we'll probably appear on the Goodies Pirate podcast here and there but in terms of Doctor Who podcasts I don't have any plans to uh, appear 
on any others about you, Rob? Uh, well, no, not particularly, but I, I do have uh, something hopefully being published later this year uh, that will require me to get out there and uh, do a bit of uh, my own uh, marketing slash publicity. So uh, I may, for that particular venture, which I can't talk about at the moment, uh, not because it's you know state secrets or anything, but it's not my place, um, I, I may appear on one or two just to, just to push the barrow. But otherwise, I, look, you know, um, no, no, I don't. I don't envision myself uh, appearing on any other podcasts. Just me and you, Mark. Me and you forever. I think it's what made it. To be honest, I'm thinking about doing a uh, '80s music show on community radio, all on vinyl. There you know, you hopefully, I might work somebody a bit more professional next time. I don't know. But we'll yeah, thanks very much for that. You can get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Mark John from the Diddly Dumb podcast. Remember that board game episode that you and Richard did that I wasn't on? Yes, probably one of our more successful recording ventures. One of the episodes afterwards, Mark contacted us about uh, the, the board game, the Doctor Who, the Game of Time and Space. There was some companion tokens, pieces, that actually had the wrong companions' names on. So, for example, one was called Susie, which I'm assuming was supposed to be Susan. Sarah Jane, S-A-R-A. Layla. <laughs> Or Lila was supposed to be Leela, L-Y-L-A. So there's a whole stack of uh, the, the images. What we'll do is we'll uh, get those images and post them up on our blog. What Mark says, it looks like they've looked through a list of Doctor Who adversaries and guessed what they might look like. I kind of like the space pirate though. And there's some some random monsters in there as well. And Mark says, it's almost like they didn't have an actual license from the BBC to make the game. So they changed all the names and the characters so they didn't get sued, except they did have a damn license. Shoddy, really. Games Workshop, who uh, made this game, should have been ashamed. Having said that, I look back on this period in Games Workshop's history with nostalgia and fondness. I miss the days when they had regular output of exciting and varied board games instead of just pumping up boring Warhammer variations consistently like they have done for the last two decades. Happy times. P.S. For more information on the game, you should check out BoardGameGeek.com. Uh, one of my favourite sites from the net. So thank you for that, Mark. I'll get all those images and put them on the blog post for this episode. There's some really scary stuff. It's got Invisible Enemy, and it's just basically an outline of a random person <laughs> and a unit. The Yeti does not look like a Yeti at all. Iceman, who the hell is that supposed to be? I don't know. Look, to some some crazy, crazy-ass stuff on that, so yes. Now, before we go, it's uh, book plug time. Hayden Gribble, one of the co-hosts on a Diddly Dumb podcast, the uh, second best Doctor Who podcast out there, has got a book coming out, and it's called Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years. The blurb is as follows. For 26 years, Doctor Who was a British institution, capturing the imaginations of generations of children. But then, in 1989, it was cancelled. The Doctor and his on-screen adventures were no more. There was no longer a hero, a champion for the outcasts who struggled to fit in. It was as though he had walked into his TARDIS and set the control for dematerialization, never to return. A whole generation lost to the powers of science fiction's greatest creation. It was in this doctorless world that I grew up. This is the story of how one little boy would try to find the doctor in any way, shape or form and the obstacles he faced in doing so. This is the story of growing up with our Doctor Who in the wilderness years and how I lived through it. We'll put all the links to the uh, book and Hayden's uh, Facebook page and his website in the show notes for this podcast. Been getting some rave reviews already at the moment. I uh, really recommend so our listeners get behind this worthwhile project. So well done, Hayden. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting my hands on a copy of this book as well. Thank you once again for listening to us. Our next episode, we're going to do top five unit stories. Well, I look forward to that, and hopefully our listeners do too. With a special guest. A very special guest. Is it Nick Courtney? He's dead. <laughs> it's Ian Levine. He's coming back to fandom. <laughs>
On that bombshell, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And we'll speak again very, very soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. Last week we said some things about Salman Rushdie that were a bit rough. Yeah. Unfortunately no one called in, no one phoned at all. Our car tyres haven't been slashed and the cat's entrails haven't been smeared across our front doorstep. But so this week we're going straight to the top. We're going after the big game. We're going after the people that even Darren and Yana won't touch. Kylie and Jason. <laughs> Jason, you're asking. I'll tell you why. It's because you people think they're really spunky. That's why. It's because you people want to touch their little bottoms. You want to feel their little peenies. <laughs> it's because you, you really, really love them. them. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, we don't. Come on, people. This isn't a pantomime. Oh, yes, it is. Now settle down the lot of you, because we know what we're talking about, eh? We've got our finger on the pulse. We all have magazine subscriptions, and I myself subscribe to a magazine that is intelligent, insightful, and has deep, probing articles on the social mores of this uh, society. That magazine is, of course, Dolly Magazine. I've got a copy there. Oh, come on, people. This has some great articles in it. What you can do with half a cucumber, a bit of mango rind, and some tea bags for your complexion. Just incredible. And they have the best... The best competitions. You almost know about that big one. Big competition, end of December last year, eh? The night out with Kylie and Jason. <laughs> I won that competition. <laughs> and next Tuesday night before the show, I'm going to go out with them. And I think it might be a little like this. I won a big prize in a magazine. A night in Ramsey Street with what's-his-name and Shaw. I sat there eagerly with my private invitation My thoughts were filled with bizarre initiations This couple oh so sweet, naive and innocent Their idea of fornication makes Lady Di look bent But maybe hit the smack, maybe enjoy a whack But they were real nice kids, so I tried a different tack I pumped up their hearts with love, then mind expanding drugs And made a proposition with a rubber glove I thought they need convincing then Kylie started mincing And Jason was expanding When I said I'd ride a tango Jason and Kylie But now to Kwame Let's get together and we'll practice making babies Jason can play Ken Kylie plays Barbie When I stop playing Rin Tin Tin No fun but how the doggy And then Jason can defend her A sexual ritual, I flick them with my towel Just like Gold Don Lane and his coffee table pals They're just as good in bed as on the TV screen Young intellectuals will know what I mean 
Kylie and Jason, let's play Freemasons. I'll chase you around the house while you wear silly aprons. I'll be the wife who doesn't understand. It's not the clothes that make the man, it's the handshake. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Hey, hey! Jason and Kylie, and super hey. They're just like free range eggs, they're a damn good lay. We made a real friendship, each one of us inside us. And when you root like that, nothing can divide us. One, two, one, two, three. Jason and Kylie, let's go, hey!